The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Galatians 1, verses 3 through 13. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, yeah, if you do have a Bible, go ahead and get to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be hanging out there for our final week in this series on doing what Jesus did. We've covered a ton of ground over the last 10 weeks thinking about all of these practices that marked the life of Jesus, things like eating with people far from God, things like making disciples through preaching the gospel and teaching the way, sacrificing and serving others, living a life of simplicity and generosity, uh, engaging in spiritual warfare, so and healing the sick, so much good stuff. I hope that it's been a blessing to you. Uh, I want to close tonight with just fair warning what's going to be a bit of a doozy uh, of a sermon, both in length and in content. Uh, and so if you would, just go ahead and settle in to those rock hard pews that we're going to get to sit in for three more weeks. I just am sad about leaving the space, and so I figured we'd just spend extra time in it. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, our practice for tonight is defending the gospel. I want to talk about what does it look like to do what Jesus did in defending the gospel. And, and I say this um, before in jest, now in seriousness. Uh, Tonight is a, a, a bit of a doozy, and, I, and I'm going to have to go some places that I personally all day today would rather not go, uh, and that you in a few minutes are going to rather I not go. Um, but I do this because I love you, and I want to show you the scriptures, and I want to help you follow Jesus, and I think it'll make sense once we get into it. Uh, let me pray one more time for us, um, and then let's, let's get right in. Lord, we do ask that you uh, would be what you promised you are, which is present with your gathered people. And that you would do what you have always done for thousands of years, which is speak through your word. God, if there's anything that I have to say tonight that is not of you, Lord, would you let it fall on deaf ears, Lord? But if there's truth from you, God, would you let it pierce our hearts? That we would not grow numb to you, to your spirit, and to your word. Lord, we want the posture of open-handed, open hearts, open ears that might hear from you. We need you. We love you. Pray all these things and all God's people said, amen. Well, I want to talk tonight, like I said, about defending the gospel. And I think Galatians chapter one is a great place to be for this topic because really the whole book of Galatians is one big defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're not familiar with the book, the, the kind of context for it is that the apostle Paul had planted really a group of house churches, not just one church, but multiple in a region of the ancient world known as Galatia, which is modern day Turkey. But as he often did, Paul plants the 
church, and then he leaves it behind with some elders or pastors so that he could go on and plant more churches. Just a couple of years after Paul has left, some false teachers have entered into the church, and they start twisting and distorting the gospel message that Paul had preached, this gospel which he starts the letter by reminding them in verse 3 where he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul reminds them, this is the gospel that Christ has come, that he has taken on flesh, like we're about to celebrate for Advent, that he has entered into humanity, that he has lived a perfect life that you and I cannot live, and yet died on the cross and rose again three days later, defeating and delivering us from the present evil age, Satan, sin, and death, so that everyone who puts faith in him and him alone will be forgiven of our sins and made right with God. Or as we've summarized it before, the gospel can be summarized like this, God is good, we are not. Jesus came, so repent and trust in him. Paul says that's the gospel, and these false teachers have come into the church, and they're twisting it, and they're distorting it, and they're adding to it, and they're debasing it. And, and specifically, what is happening with these false teachers is that they've entered into a church of predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish people, and they've told them, hey, in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be right with God, you need to be circumcised like we have been. Now, this is more than them just inviting them to a painful procedure. What's happening here is that they are telling them, hey, to be right with God, you must take on a Jewish identity and Jewish religious and cultural customs. It's an ancient form of what you can call syncretism. And this is wildly important for the rest of our time tonight. Syncretism is the fusion of diverse beliefs and practices. It's where you take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Let's mix together some ideologies and worldviews and religions to form a religious expression that is more suitable to what I want or desire. And Paul says, in so doing, they have distorted the true gospel. They have set it up in such a way that you can't actually worship the true God. And so he goes right in on them and on it in verse 6. This is what he says. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So he says, you're not just phoning it in on a set of beliefs, you're giving up on God altogether. You're deserting the God who called you in his grace by following this false teaching. He continues, it gets worse. Not that there is another one, not there's another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be, in the Greek, it's the word anathema. Let him be set apart for destruction. This is no game to Paul. The gospel, the core foundational reality of who God is and how we as broken, sinful people are made right with him is at stake. And Paul says, if someone preaches a false gospel, let him be set apart for destruction. You cannot distort it. You cannot twist it. You cannot syncretize it and add to it. Now, what Paul is addressing in Galatians chapter 1 is not unlike what Jesus dealt with on a consistent basis throughout his entire earthly ministry. So turn over with me to Matthew 16. Keep a spot in Galatians 1. We'll come back there 
later, but hop over to Matthew chapter 16. This is really one of a ton of interactions that Jesus has with the religious leaders where he's trying to push back on their false teachings and, and kind of what's happening. And here in particular, he's trying to teach his disciples about being on guard against these false teachers. And this is what he says in Matthew 16. We'll pick it up in verse five. It says, when the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's just a, a Bible word for yeast. Think like something you put into dough just a little bit that, that gives it a certain texture and rise. Verse seven, and they began discussing it among themselves saying, but we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? He's referencing back to two miracles where he's taken a little bit of food and at one time fed 5,000, at one time fed 4,000. But then here's his point. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus says, hey, beware of the leaven, because just like a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast can impact and affect a whole batch of dough. So Jesus says, a little bit of false teaching from these religious leaders can corrupt and affect your entire faith. And so he says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now it's important for us to understand what this false teaching was. So let's take a minute to talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So for the Pharisees, they had specific teachings and ways of reading the Torah or the Old Testament scriptures that they wanted to impose onto others. And they had a ton of mixed motivations for sure, but the primary goal of the Pharisees was to help people follow God's laws. And so they would take what God had said to his people and add to it in order to, in their minds, help people stay as far away as possible from disobeying God so that they could live a righteous life and be right with God. Because they said, hey, in order for you to be right with God, you have to live perfectly, live righteously. So here's a bunch of extra rules onto the law of God to make sure you do not disobey him and do what he will not like. Uh, one really easy example of this is around the Sabbath, right? So God says, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy, set it aside as a day of rest. Well, for the Pharisees, they're like, what does that mean? We need some extra rules to help guard around this. So here's how much weight you can carry. Here's how far you can walk. And if you go above or beyond that, then you're working. Here's what we need to do in order to to stay right with God so that he will love us. Sadducees were slightly different, but really the same problems. So the Sadducees were primarily wealthy priestly families who in order to make money would twist and distort and add not to the moral laws of, of Judaism, but to the ceremonial laws of that culture. And then they would enforce them on people who would come to the temple to make sacrifices. So you know the story, uh, if you've read your Bible or you've been around church, Mark chapter 11, where Jesus storms into the temple and overturns all the tables. That is an attack on the Sadducees. What they were doing is people would come into the temple to offer their sacrifices to God and they would bring whatever animal, a pigeon or a lamb, whatever they needed for their sacrifices. And the Sadducees would say, ah, your sacrifice isn't good enough. God's not gonna accept that. Just buy ours instead. And they were using it as a money-making technique. And so Jesus comes in righteously angry and is like, you have turned the temple, which is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. So in Matthew 16, Jesus is warning his disciples about the very issue Paul is now having to address in Galatia 20 years later. 
It's a twisting and distorting of the teachings of God. People coming into the church trying to add their own teachings, add their own false views, trying to syncretize their beliefs they held or wanted to hold with the teachings of God and in so doing, actually keeping people from the worship of the one true God. What we see in Matthew 16 and what we see in Galatians 1 is clear. You cannot let that go. Paul says very clearly, if anybody comes in distorting the gospel of God, let him be set apart for destruction. Jesus time and time again pushes back on the Pharisees, pushes back on the Sadducees, pushes back on the religious leaders. You are keeping people from God and that is not okay. No matter how small these false teachings might be, it will ruin the entire thing. All right, everybody tracking so far, we good? All right, that was the easy part. Now let's get personal. Let's bridge the gap from 47 AD in Paul's letter to the churches at Galatia to 2022 AD. Let's bridge the gap into our world. What does this mean for us? Well, here's what I wanna argue. There is a great problem today in our culture and in the church with religious syncretism. There's a great problem today in our surrounding culture and in the church with religious syncretism. There are a whole host of ways today, both inside and outside the church, that people take the word of God, take the gospel, and distort it and twist it and add to it and change it or reshaping it, mashing it up together with other ideologies and other viewpoints and other belief systems, and in so doing, keep people from worshiping the one true God. And the most obvious, I would argue, and chief one right on the surface, this syncretism that distorts the gospel is what we experienced this past Tuesday. It's the world of politics. The number one way in our culture today that people want to distort and syncretize the gospel and the Christian faith is in the world of politics, where political opinions and agendas and ideologies shape our discipleship to Jesus rather than the other way around. Politics so often co-ops the Christian faith. For example, take a look with me at some photos from January 6th of 2021. A man dressed in all black, holding tightly to a Bible. Or folks praying with their head pushed against a cross. Or perhaps a Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president flag. All religious symbols being used in an act of violence and rioting against the Capitol. Let me ask you a question. What do you feel looking at those? Do you think about those photos? Do you sense a righteous anger like Jesus and Paul? That someone would co-opt the gospel and use Christian symbols to justify and even encourage an act that, to be honest, was blatantly unchristian? In response, shortly after the riots, over 500 Christian leaders in the U.S. released a joint statement that reads, quote, there is a version of American nationalism that is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity, and it is a heretical version of our faith. How does that quote make you feel? Now, to be honest, in a room of predominantly Gen Z and millennials, I have zero nerves showing those photos. That doesn't scare me at all. For those of us living in an urban city, majority under the age of 40, most of us, not all of us, most of us are pretty on board with that. But let me show you another set of photos. What about this? A cross surrounded by a heart, a, a symbol of love, support of the murder of the unborn, the numerically worst genocide in human history. What about this photo? 
from a Boston church's recent Drag Queens and Jesus worship night. Or a clerical collar, what started in many Christian traditions to show a pastor or a priest being set apart as celibate to focus on the work of God, now used as a symbol for something else. What do you feel looking at those? What do those stir within you? Do we sense a righteous anger like Jesus and like Paul that someone would co-opt the gospel and use Christian symbols to justify and even encourage acts that, let's just be honest, are blatantly unchristian? What if we rephrase the quote from the letter? What if it said this? There is a version of American progressivism that is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity and is a heretical version of our faith. Now, just so we're clear, this is not a sermon on politics or sexual ethics. This is a sermon on defending the gospel. My point is to show that regardless of what side of the aisle politically you want to lean on or run to, both are guilty of co-opting the Christian faith. Both are guilty of taking Christian symbols and using them to twist and distort the true gospel and, let's face it, to keep people from worshiping the one true God. But maybe politics aren't your thing. Maybe you could care less about political agendas or what's happening on CNN or Fox News. Maybe you didn't even know there was a midterm elections on Tuesday. The good news for you is that this syncretism can actually go much deeper and be much sneakier and look much more polished than simply the extreme forms of right and left political Phariseeism. There are a whole host of ways the gospel can be distorted and twisted and corrupted for our discipleship to Jesus, especially in a city like Charlotte. There are currents and streams of thought that are not only lived, but I would argue celebrated in our city that run contrary to the ways of Jesus. Ideologies and worldviews and ways of living that would draw us, not to throw away our discipleship to Jesus, but just kind of co-opted enough to make it passable for both. Like I'm passable to the church, but I'm also passable to the culture at large. It's a sort of mixing together of things that we already want, a little DIY faith, if you will, right? Where in our city, we add together things like some nice teachings from Jesus about the poor, maybe a little splash or hint of Sabbath and contemplative prayer, a, a healthy dose of progressive sexual ethics, radical individualism, and the supreme importance of the nuclear family. And then on top, just enough religious and consumerism to keep us coming back to the church for more. That's the danger of syncretism in our moment today that we would simply mix together these ideologies, mix together these ways of living and being in the world, seeking to overlap them with the ways of Jesus, such that being Christian suddenly looks much more like American than the scriptures ever actually portray it. I read an article recently by a journalist named Ben Sixsmith, where he addresses this sort of DIY Christianity. He calls it a bundling service for spirituality, which I think is such a good line. And he said something that I thought was so incredibly fascinating about this syncretism uh, in Christianity, particularly because he's not a Christian. He's not a follower of Jesus. But I think what he says is so spot on. Here's what he says. He says, within the church today, there is mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modish or popular political activism in a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture instead of this version of church because they can have all those things and premarital sex. That's a joke. You guys, we can laugh. 
He says, we can see the American with a tryst of Christianity trend everywhere. And he goes on to talk about ways we see it in the left and in the right. He talks in sarcasm and jest about how strange it is that both sides of the political spectrum say they speak for God and God just so happens to agree with everything they want to do anyway. And then he finishes with this. He says, so if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I'm not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. And this is the key line, I love this. He says, instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. He says, what's compelling about a faith that's just really the same as me and everybody else around me? He's not a Christian. He's like, there's nothing compelling about that. If 90% of your values, if 90% of your worldview, if 90% of how you live your life is just gonna look like mine as someone who's not a follower of Jesus, then what's the point? It doesn't really seem like you want me to be like you. It kind of seems like you really would rather be like me. Jesus with a twist. The gospel with some add-ons to fit into the surrounding culture. Gospel with some add-ons that match our predetermined, pre-Jesus beliefs, where Jesus becomes more tolerable, more suitable to the world around us, more syncretized to the ways of culture. And Jesus speaks out against it, Paul speaks out against it, and we must speak out against it too. So then the question becomes, how? What do we do? How do we actually learn to defend the gospel and step into doing what Jesus did? When we see things that are corrupting and polluting the gospel, both in culture and in the church, what do we actually do? Well, first, let me tell you what it doesn't look like. Defending the gospel, stepping out and pushing back against these ways that it's been syncretized and corrupted in the church and in the culture doesn't look like our current moment of deconstruction. Maybe you've heard this term before. If not, I think this is one of the best summary definitions I found. This is from Alyssa Childers. She says, deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. And I don't know that I need to tell you how just incredibly rampant this is in the Western church right now. A study released by the Pew Research Center, uh, but I'm going to, uh, a study released by the Pew Research Center two months ago today showed that in the U.S., of those who grow up within the church, 30% will become agnostic or atheist in their 20s. A third of every person who grows up in the church will walk away from the faith during their 20s. Of those in other parts of the Western world, that number rises to as high as 47%. One in every two people who grow up around church, around the faith, will walk away at some point in their 20s. One other study released this past summer showed that during the two primary years of COVID, March 2020 to March 2022, one third of churchgoers left the church and have stated no intention of ever returning. But we all know this is way more than just statistics, right? These are stories. These are faces. These are lives. These are stories you know personally. These are your friends. These are your family members. These are your coworkers. This is deeply personal for me. I grew up uh, in church around the faith. I went to a small private Christian high school. And when I mean small and private, I mean 18 kids in my graduating class. 18 kids who when we were seniors in high school would say and declare publicly, I am a follower of Jesus. Of those 18, four of us still want anything to do with Jesus and his people. This is deeply personal for me. So those aren't just stats. Those are people I grew up with. Those are my friends. I know their parents. I know their siblings. I went on trips with them. Some of them were in my wedding. 
who just gave it up. Maybe this is your story. Maybe you're like, no, it's not my friends, it's me. Maybe you're like, I'm just wrestling with this stuff right now. Like I turn on the news or I get on Twitter or Instagram or I talk to a Christian and I'm like, I don't think I like your Jesus. I don't know what your Jesus is. I just don't think I like it. Or maybe you've already walked away from the faith and somebody dragged you back to church because you're just asking one more time, is there anything viable about this whole following Jesus thing? I think what happens so often in these stories, and again, I don't, I don't, I don't know to claim to know the intricacies of your experience or what you're wrestling with or what all of those people I graduated with have walked through. I don't know all of it, but I've had enough conversations and walked through this with enough friends that I think a huge reason why this happens uh, is summarized by a quote from a friend of mine from college who said this to me a few years ago. He said, Tim, the Jesus I read about in the Bible and the Jesus I saw in the church just didn't line up. And I didn't know what to do with that. And so I left the church to find my faith and ended up leaving both. There's gotta be a better way. Yeah, the church is super corrupt. It was corrupt in 47 AD. (laughs) It was corrupt 15 years after Jesus. 15 years after Jesus, people were co-opting the teachings of Christ. 15 years after Jesus, people were infiltrating the church and leading them towards all sorts of ridiculous stuff. 15 years after Jesus, people proved to be what Jesus said they were, sinners in need of a saving God. And yet the church has continued to grow. It's continued to flourish. Jesus has done what he promised he would do. He has built his church. And so we have thousands of years of Christian faithfulness in the midst of Christians being idiots. So there's gotta be a better way. So let me just spend our last few minutes trying to to paint a path for that better way. I just wanna talk about how we step forward into defending the gospel without losing our faith. And what I wanna invite us to is what I would call healthy deconstruction. Healthy deconstruction, which I would define as defending the gospel while keeping the faith. How do you defend the gospel? How do you learn to break down all of the ways the gospel has been co-opted while still keeping a robust, flourishing joy with Jesus and his people? Healthy deconstruction. I just wanna give us four keys of what this looks like. We'll hit them quickly, all from Galatians chapter one. Number one, how do you healthily deconstruct defending the gospel while keeping the faith? Number one, make scripture the priority. Make scripture the priority. Another way to say this is to deconstruct with the Bible, deconstruct culture with the Bible, not the Bible with culture. So if culture and the Bible don't seem to agree, which as we said, I think last week for thousands of years, they never disagree. There are always ways culture and the scriptures will speak against one another. Then we change culture, not God's word. What we see in the example and the ways of Jesus is this very reality, using the scriptures to critique the culture of the church. If you read the teachings of Jesus, one of the things he constantly does is this line. He says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. It's one of the constant refrains you hear from Jesus, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's one in particular in Matthew six, where he says this, he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, if you go back to the original text, the original uh, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, it doesn't actually have that line, hate your enemy. That's something that's been included and co-opted and syncretized into it. And Jesus says, you've heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, no, 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 love your enemy. He's using scripture. He's using what is true about God's word to critique and go against and push back against the ways that the church has been corrupted. He's using scripture to critique what is happening in the church, the synagogue of his day. That's good, healthy deconstruction, using the Bible to critique the church and culture. 
This is what we see throughout church history, right? Zing, Zwingli and Calvin and the reformers and, and Luther, William Wilberforce, he's the one who led the abolitionist movement in uh, Great Britain in the early 1800s. He used scripture and how he read God's word about the dignity of humanity to push back against culture, both within the church and outside the church. And what happens in the pattern of unhealthy deconstruction we see today, it does the opposite. Instead of using the Bible to critique culture, it uses culture to critique the Bible. So we say, okay, here's what's happening on the broader landscape. Here's what's happening in the world around me. Here's my predetermined, already formed moral views of right and wrong, good and evil. Now let me put the Bible through that filter and see what stands. Paul says, no, that's not okay. It's exactly what he's trying to combat in Galatians. He says this in Galatians 1.8. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven, that's hyperbole, kind of. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He's trying to defend against the false teachers who are saying, hey, here's what's happening in surrounding culture. So what's happening in the time of Galatia is that the Jewish religious party said, hey, we're okay with this whole Jesus thing if you also make sure they follow all of our religious customs and rules. You gotta make sure they're Jewish too. You gotta make sure they're, they're buying in on everything that we are also about. And so they were like, great, that sounds good. We can have our cake and eat it too. We can follow the culture. We can be about this resurrection thing. That sounds awesome. And Paul says, no, you have received what is true. Don't throw it in. So church, I think the first thing we do in healthy deconstruction is we remember we have received what is true. This is trustworthy, that it is good, that it is our authority, and it is our authority because it is the word of God, and God is our authority. And so when there are times in our lives or in the church or in culture where it doesn't seem to line up with this, this is not the problem. It's trustworthy. Thousands of manuscripts, men spoken as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, preserved throughout the centuries, affirmed by the church, trusted and true and lasting and without error. This is what we stand under. And so when our culture says, go this way, we say, let's see. And when it disagrees, we say, no, we stand on this. If that makes us outdated, we stand on this. If that makes us not with the times, we stand on this. If that makes us bigoted, we stand on this. We stand on the truth of God's word. That's number one. Number two, be willing to suffer. Be willing to suffer. Unhealthy deconstruction leans in on this part of my faith or the scriptures seem offensive or repressive or outdated, so I'm gonna change it. But healthy deconstruction says, no, ultimately I'm after God's approval. I'm not co-opting to the world's definition of love. I'm not changing my beliefs just to make them more swallowable. Now we hold them in love. Always we hold them with grace. Always we hold them with winsomeness. Always we hold them in kindness and humility. But we say, no, God is the one who names my identity. So we say with Paul in Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I'm still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, I don't care what these people think of me. In chapter two, he's like, I don't even care what Peter thinks of me. Yeah, the Peter, I don't even care. He was wrong. He calls him out in chapter two for also going along with these false teachers from withdrawing from the Gentiles who would not be circumcised. He eats with them. The religious leaders show up. Peter withdraws and Paul's like, I called him out too. I don't care. He's like, I follow God. I'm about him. I wanna honor him. I'm a servant of Christ. The second step of healthy deconstruction is being willing to suffer. 
being willing to suffer, as you speak out against ways that the church has been corrupted, as you speak out against ways that culture has tried to co-opt the Christian faith, be willing to suffer, be willing to suffer loss of reputation, be willing to lose friendships, be willing to lose cultural capital. There are times if you're seeking to defend the gospel from the ways it's been secretized and corrupt, that you, corrupted that you might have to stand alone under pressure. And I'm not, I'm not like the doomsday guy. So I'm not up here being like, we're gonna go to prison in five years if we're Christians. Like, that's not me. If that's you, that's fine. We can talk about it. That's just not me. I don't think that. I think we have a lot of freedom. I think we're good in a lot of ways. But I do think in the years to come, it is going to be harder to hold a robust discipleship to Jesus in the trajectory of our culture. I was uh, hanging out with a, a friend of mine uh, a few weeks ago and we just gotten to know each other over the past um, couple of years since living in Charlotte. And I was just asking him, I said, hey man, are you ever gonna come visit my church? Like we're friends, like you should come, come see it. Like I'll tell you when I'm preaching, like let's, let's just come to, come check it out. Like it's not a big deal, no big deal. We meet at five, like don't worry about it, come, come check it out. And he was just like, no, never. And it was more aggressive than I thought it was gonna be. And so I was like, that's weird. Uh, okay, why? And he goes, cause I think you're stupid. And I said, me? And he goes, no, just your faith. I think Christians are dumb. Now I went home that night and I slept fine. I'm not under persecution. We were at a craft brewery. <laughs> and he's still my friend, we still hang out. But I do think that more and more it's going to be harder to hold to a robust Christian faith. I think more and more it's gonna be harder to stand on the foundation of God's word. I think more and more it's going to be harder to say, here's what the Bible says and I gotta go with that just gonna get more difficult. And so we have to count the cost. We have to decide, I'm, am I gonna be a servant of Christ or am I still trying to please man? Number three, number three, deal with the inner Pharisee. Deal with the inner Pharisee. This, uh, just, just in case you're confused, this is the one thing that like, this is not how we do what Jesus did because he didn't have the inner Pharisee, he was perfect, but this is for us, we deal with the inner Pharisee. Uh, if your process of deconstructing what is broken only includes what's broken around you, that is not going to be a recipe for a flourishing faith. If your process for, I gotta break down how the gospel is then co-opted doesn't also include your own heart and the ways that you have syncretized the gospel in your own heart, it will not lead to flourishing with Christ. I love Paul here in Galatians 1. He continues into verse 11. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the road to Damascus where Jesus shows up, blinds him, leads him to conversion. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This is what's crazy about Paul in Galatians 1. Paul, when he, Paul comes to faith, he comes out of the very same religious tradition he is now trying to defend the gospel against. Paul comes out of the very same religious leaders that Jesus speaks out against and warns his disciples about in Matthew chapter 16. That's Paul, he's in the Pharisees. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous for the traditions, zealous for the ways the faith has been co-opted. And so when Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus, blinds him and leads him to saving faith, Paul says, first and foremost, I gotta walk away from that. If you read through the scriptures, I think it's Philippians, he talks about, I consider that nothing. I consider that like poop is the word that he uses in Greek. You can look it up later. He's like, I consider that nothing because I know Christ. 
First and foremost, if we're gonna walk this path of deconstructing the way the gospel has been syncretized and co-opted by the culture, we first must do the work of dealing with the ways we've syncretized it in our own hearts. What are the ways we've added to the gospel? What are the ways we've said, no, I want my life to look more American than Christian? What are the ways we've tried to have our Jesus and have the culture as well? We must deal with the inner Pharisee. That leads us to number four. Number four, reconstruct a beautiful church. Reconstruct a beautiful church. Healthy deconstruction realizes that it's the middle of a process of growing into maturity, not the end. So take it out of strictly religious terms for a second. This is just secular psychology, talks about the process of maturation for every individual. And stage one, as you kind of grow into adulthood and mature as an adult, stage one is construction. Right, this is every child. Every child walks through a construction phase. Some are really beautiful and healthy. Some come from broken homes that are not beautiful and not healthy. But every child has a way of viewing the world that is constructed. And when they're little in particular, you, you live in black and white. You live in yes or no. My child is two. She does not understand nuance and will not understand nuance for a long time. It's yes or no, do or don't. This is very simple. We're constructing this world around us based on our parents, our family of origin, teachers and schooling and work and culture and the town you grew up in, it builds us into a type of person. And then this happens for everyone who walks through adolescence. Stage two, eventually you start to deconstruct. Eventually you say, do I agree with the rules of my parents? My parents said I had to eat vegetables for every dinner. Do I like that? I don't know, I don't wanna do that anymore. I wanna have pizza every night of the week. And that's why freshman year we eat whatever we want, right? That's a process of deconstruction. That's a process of maturation. We're looking at the ways our life has been constructed and we've been taught how to believe. And we're saying, what do I actually agree with and not? The problem is in our kind of moment of deconstruction, both inside and outside the church, that is where we get stuck. And the problem is that we call being stuck at phase two maturity. We think it's mature to be stuck in doubts. We think it's mature to have cynicism towards the things of the world. We think it's mature to be like, yeah, you can't really trust that or them or those things. But if you're stuck at stage two, you will not ever build something in your life that is flourishing or beautiful. I see this all the time in, in premarital counseling. When I sit down with couples who are about to get married who come from broken homes, and so often when you kind of ask them, hey, what's your vision of marriage? Like, what do, what do you think a flourishing marriage looks like? It's just a bunch of I don't want statements. Well, I don't want a marriage like my parents. Well, I don't want to fight like my mom and dad did. Well, I don't want to treat each other like this. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. And that's all good. That's a part of the maturation process to deconstruct those things. But eventually we have to have a vision of what we're for and not just what we're against. And that's maturity. That's stage three. That's what Jesus invites us into. Stage three, which is reconstruction. After we tear down, we learn to build something back beautiful in its place. And that's what I love about Matthew 16. So Jesus is like, hey, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of all of the ways they're corrupting the gospel. And then he says this, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. There's this saying going around and has been going around for a while in Christianity that Jesus is not about religion. He's about relationship. Which is, if you mean by that, uh, you can't just follow a set of rules, you can't just do the church things, you can't just go through the religious motions and be right with God, I would wholeheartedly agree. You do have to have a relationship with Jesus that starts by faith in him. Absolutely, if that's what you mean. But it's, that phrase is often used to talk about Jesus as if he's anti-religion. But if you read the narrative of the scriptures, here's the reality. Jesus is not anti-religion, he's anti-corruption of religion. Because he says, I will build my church. 
Jesus' mission in coming to earth was to build a collective group of people who would carry on his mission in the world. That was his whole point. Not a bunch of individual followers just kind of doing what they want with him, but a group of people, a church, a unified body. The church is called the Bride of Christ, the holy temple where God's presence dwells time and time again in the New Testament. So Jesus says, yeah, there's some ways right now that these things are being corrupt, but don't worry, Peter, I'm gonna build my church. I'm gonna build something back beautiful in its place. And here's the good news, nothing will prevail against it. So all of that is the invitation for us as we follow Jesus. So we defend the gospel. We, we look at what is broken and co-opted and syncretized with the gospel in our culture, in the church, in our own hearts. And we learn with Christ in the spirit, under the authority of the scripture, in community to deconstruct, to break down what is not in line with the scriptures, not in line with God's reality and authority in the ways of Jesus. And we build back a more beautiful godly, flourishing church. A church flourishing in the ways of Jesus. A church willing to look more like the kingdom of God than the kingdom of America, right or left. A church flourishing with Jesus at the center. A church grounded in the good news of the gospel. And part of how we defend the gospel is by doing what we do every week, celebrating communion. Part of how we remember there's only one way we're made right with God is by the act of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. So we're gonna move into that time now as a church. There should be little cups with little wafers on your seat. Uh, if you're not a Christian, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, trusted that God is good, that you are not, that Jesus came, so repent and trust in him. If you've not done that, we'd ask you not to take communion just because you'd be saying this is true about you when it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, I invite you to take Christ. I'll be down front. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But for all who are followers of him, on the night he was portrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. And church, every time we eat this little wafer, we remember that it was the body of Christ given on the cross that makes us by faith right with God. So all who are in Christ, take and eat. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing, remembering, celebrating the Lord's death until he returns. The true gospel declares, and we hold to this promise that it is the blood of Jesus which washes us clean and makes us right with God. No man-made rules, no man-made laws, no religious activity, faith in Jesus because his blood is what makes us clean. So all who are in Christ, take and drink. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna respond like we always do. We're gonna have some prayer folks in the back who would love to pray with you and for you about anything going on in your life. Maybe you feel ways in your heart that you're tempted to syncretize and co-opt the faith. They'd love to pray with you and for you about that. Maybe you just have something going on. They'd love to pray with you and for you of anything going on in your life. And for the rest of us, in just a minute, we're gonna stand and sing and celebrate Jesus together. But let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, thank you that there is nothing we can do ever ever, 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 no church attendance, no religious activity, no good deeds, no care for the poor, no scripture memorization, nothing that can make us right with you. We are made right with you one way and one way only, and that is faith and faith alone in Christ. Would we celebrate the fact that Jesus came, that he entered into humanity, 
that he lived the life we couldn't, yet he died the death we should have. Yet he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later, declaring victory over all that is evil in the world, declaring victory over all that is broken, declaring victory over Satan, sin, and death so that we could know you and be made right with you by faith. Well, when I pray for the deceitfulness of sin to be rooted out of our hearts. And I pray for the ways that we want to co-op and syncretize the gospel or the ways that we want to add to the scriptures, the way that we want to put culture and the moment that we're in and the narratives and worldviews that are surrounding us over us as authority rather than your word. Lord, I pray that you would dispel those lies. God, that we would recognize that lies come from the father of lies, the great enemy who would have us twist and distort what is true about you. Lord, because he knows that flourishing is found with you, that life is found with you, that wholeness and healing and forgiveness and redemption now and into eternity is found in you, God. And so I pray that you would root out the corruption of our hearts, God, that you would root out the corruption within the church, God, that you would establish us as a remnant of faithful followers of you who would hold fast to a robust, orthodox, biblical, historic Christian faith, that we would be a people that stand firm in kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, but in conviction, establishing ourselves and our church on you, Lord, would you establish citizens on you? Show us the lies. Help us hold fast to what is good. We love you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.